Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from Luke chapter 20, verses 27 to 40. This is the reading of God's Holy Word. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies... Having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore... Whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, You have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us this, your word. It is indeed more necessary for us than the breakfast that we consumed this morning and the lunch that we anticipate eating just a little while from now. How much attention we give to the food that we eat in this world, but how much more attention is due to the food that is your word. We would ask that you would heighten our attentions in this hour by the power of your spirit. And we would ask that you would open up our hearts to love every single word that comes forth from your law. And we ask that you would give to us not hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh that we would embrace the living and resurrected Lord, even Jesus Christ himself, as he is made known to us from this, your word, coming by your spirit. So we would pray now that you would clear away from our minds the things that vie for our attention, and that you would now confirm to us that you are present By keeping us stayed on you, speak, be our preacher, be our lead 
and our guide. For apart from you, we can do nothing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, reading through this section of the Gospel of Luke had me deeply sympathizing with Jesus this week. How weary he must have been. This is the third, the third in just as many passages where we have seen one of his enemies rise up to catch him in something that he would say, to lay for him a trap that he might step in it with his tongue and might fall by the words of his mouth into the clutches of either the Romans or the Jews, either being accused of blasphemy or maybe of insurrection based upon the types of things that he might say put in these false dilemmas. If I was Jesus, I'd say enough already. I'd want to be out of here just as soon as I possibly could have. I wouldn't have lingered around for this discussion with these Sadducees. Because I'm not really much for fighting, to be honest. If I err, and I often do, I err on the side of making cheap peace. I, I don't err as often on the side of picking cheap fights. And that's just me. That's how the Lord has made me. Some of you are different in that regard. You understand the desire for a nice little fight. Some of you enjoy that. Others of us just like to try to make peace as best as we can, keep the waters calm, keep the boat from rocking. That's what we desire. I have no reason to think that Jesus felt similarly to me because he does not err. He doesn't have a proclivity to make cheap peace or to pick cheap fights, but we do know that Jesus was a real man. He was a real man, a man with real feelings, experiencing real emotions, one who would have known what it is like to grow weary in these kinds of conversations. It's not speculative to suggest that these face-to-face -face battles with Jesus' religious and political enemies were at times quite exhausting for our Lord. And on more than one occasion, it is likely that he found in his own soul that type of weariness, and he knew what it was like for the Lord to come by his Spirit in proportion to his need as he was under attack. Thankfully, time and again, Jesus doesn't do what I would do, which is flee the situation or try to make that cheap peace. No, the Lord remains faithful. The Lord remains faithful. When any other rider would have exited the race, Jesus stays in the saddle. And he stays in the saddle and he goes right to the front of the lines. And though the bullets are whizzing by his head, theologically speaking, he doesn't flinch with fear. But he trusts in his father who has given him a mission to complete. And with a clear-eyed sight and a, and a steely backbone, Jesus moves right into the fray of the battles of those who want to see him dead. Now the Pharisees and the Herodians, which we've studied, if you've been with us the last few weeks, the Herodians last week, the Pharisees the week before, have already unloaded their ammunition on Jesus. 
in the previous two sections, and Jesus came out from those battles with no blood drawn whatsoever. Jesus now is entering into an engagement with this group known as the Sadducees. I can't help but envision the Sadducees sauntering up to the front lines. They are the the enemies of the Pharisees, these two groups. There was no love lost between them. Having seen the Pharisees go down in flames, having seen the Herodians go down in flames, now the Sadducees. This, this well-to-do, men of high esteem, intelligentsia, upper echelon, group of priestly and lay leaders now make their way up to Jesus to show the Pharisees and the Herodians how it's done. Teach them a few things about what it means to take down your theological enemy. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the Sadducees, to be quite honest, We read a few things in Josephus' famous histories of the Jewish people, but we do know that they were collaborators with Rome, and that didn't make them high on the charts of a likability among the Jewish people. In fact, they were charged by the Romans to oversee the buying and the selling of animals in the temple precinct. It's pretty interesting when you begin to think that just a few sections earlier, we talked of Jesus who had gone into the temple precinct and had, with zeal for his father's house, run out the money changers and run out those who would be selling uh, and buying and selling animals for sacrifices. I have to conjecture, though I don't think one has to jump too far off the text, to believe that the Sadducees didn't love that a whole lot. This was the area that they oversaw. It was what they had authority over. And here is Jesus coming in and messing with their authority. uh, Claiming this to be his father's house, a house of prayer that's that's running off the nations and has been turned into a mercantile of sorts. Can you imagine that they just smiled upon that with glee? I have to imagine that this is their opportunity to put Jesus in his place. Since he had apparently earlier put them in theirs. Now, again, we don't know a lot about the Sadducees, but we do catch a glimpse of what it is they believe here in the text, just a little note of their theological holding, and it's not a good sign. We're told that they are the ones who deny the resurrection. They deny the resurrection. Now, the Pharisees, their arch rivals, actually believed in the coming resurrection and could defend it quite faithfully from the Old Testament. It was one of the things that was a wedge between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. It was probably, you know, the Pharisees' sons as they went off to school and the Sadducees' sons as they went off to school poked about how smart their fathers were or how dumb their fathers were based upon whether or not they believed in the resurrection or not. It's the kind of thing that was probably bantered about by these two groups, usually not in the kindest of spirits. And there's something here that the Sadducees come to probably push a little bit more of a wedge between them and their rival group, the Pharisees, while simultaneously exposing Jesus. Now, if you have a hard time remembering, is it the Pharisees who, who are for the resurrection or is it the Sadducees that are for the resurrection? I want to just, just help you with that a little bit. My Sunday school teacher, when I was six years old, helped me a lot to keep this very clear. And she... She one day in Sunday school pulled me aside as I was asking questions about the Sadducees. It's a funny name, actually. And she said, Nate, you need to always remember that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, and that is why they were so sad, you see. Should be easy enough to remember, right? 
They didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're so sad, you see. Well, actually, my Sunday school teacher was on to something. Because to not believe in the resurrection was to fall into the reality of that this life is all that there is. Which is, which is a dark and despairing proposition. Uh, couched even in greater sadness and sorrow. And it makes us really cash in all of our chips here and in what seems to be the case with the Sadducees become essentially materialists and secular humanists. Uh, those who, who largely can say, yeah, there's a God up there somewhere, but he's not really all that involved in our lives. It's not as if he's scripting the end from the beginning and there's a thoroughgoing doctrine of providence. We have hope that all things work together for those who are good. No, when the body dies, the soul dies, and that's it. Here's your party, have it now, and then you die. That sort of spirit would have certainly been a part of the reality of what it is that the Sadducees would have believed. And in this case, uh, they're, they're a lot like the Enlightenment philosophers or they're a lot like uh, the deists of the 19th or the 18th century who believed, yes, God was up there. He had wound all this up and made this, and he enjoys watching it from a distance, as the song once said, but he doesn't really engage with us very much. He's not really intervening in our daily lives, and he certainly doesn't have an overarching purpose that lasts beyond the day where you take your last breath. So these resurrection-denying Sadducees approach Jesus with this fantastic dilemma, and it is a fantastic dilemma and they believe that with this dilemma they're going to prove a couple of things first of all they're going to show that the resurrection idea as a doctrine is as absurd as it sounds through this and that Jesus is the fool we all really know that he is because he believes this stuff and thus we shouldn't trust him we shouldn't follow him anyone who's going to say that dead people are going to get out of graves and live again and so they ask him, teacher, rabbi, Moses, our great friend Moses, he wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers in this particular case, Jesus. The first took a wife and died without children. And then the second brother took her and, well, he died too. And the third took her and then he died. And likewise, all seven took her as his wife, and they left no children and died. And afterward, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For she had, for seven had her as a wife. Oh, it's a fantastic dilemma. And it's wildly speculative. I don't know about you, but more times than I, as I'm reading through this little story, and I think, oh my goodness, a, 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 a wife who had to endure seven husbands. Now, think of this. Seven brothers. And is that, I find this little verse just humorous. And likewise, all seven left no children and died, and afterwards, the woman also died. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's a grace. That's a, that's a blessing. I, to be this woman in this particular text is a tremendous curse. And, and let me tell you, if, if she has married seven different men and they have all died, someone needs to hire an investigator here. <laughs> this, is a very, this is fishy. Something is not right. Call in CSI, DNA, the whole deal needs to happen 
At first blush, I mean, this really is so fanciful, right? It's so, so far-fetched. It's inquire-within kind of material. You'd be tempted to think that every aspect of this story is wildly made up. But the interesting thing is, the story is actually rooted in biblical instruction, but kind of turned on its head a bit. What do I mean by that? Well, we should note that the basis of this little instruction about a brother marrying his brother's widow after his passing who doesn't have an heir is an instruction that comes right out of Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25 teaches us about the long and noble tradition of Leverite marriage. Leverite marriage stipulated that if a man's brother died without an heir, it was the responsibility of the brother who survived to marry the widow and to produce an heir with her so that the family name might continue and so that all of the family's wealth and its estate and everything that they owned could continue. It was to be on behalf of his brother. It was to bequeath to the next generation. Now, as two Bible readers, as many of you are in this room, you know, ah, yes, I've heard of this before and I've read through the Old Testament enough to know that there's a few stories that this, this thing of leveret marriage is really crucial to. Some of you are hearkening back right now probably in your mind to that, to that PG-13 rated story in Genesis 38. You know what I'm talking about, right? Genesis 38, filing cabinet of the mind now, you're getting it out. This is Judah and Onan and Tamar. Remember the story? You know, it's the one as parents with young children you skip over and you go to chapter 39 because it's really scandalous. Because Onan was unwilling to do the responsibility that he was called to do for his brother. And then we see Judah and Tamar act in a particular way that's actually in a strange fashion called righteous because it's in keeping with Leverite marriage. It doesn't look all that righteous when you look at it. We won't think about that too long. But this also forms the background, this leveret marriage of that most beloved story in the Old Testament, the, the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. That great story of the kinsman redeemer of who's going to rescue the widow and, and who is going to, to, to bequeath the family's name and the next generation and, and actually Ruth and Boaz. And this beautiful story is rooted in the teaching of Deuteronomy 25 and Leverite marriage. Now, I did a little research yesterday, and I found out that Leverite marriage, I didn't know this, uh, as a marriage tradition, had largely been entirely disbanded by the first century. Uh, Jews really didn't practice it anymore faithfully. It was not a part of their, their custom any longer. This was a part of the Old Testament that apparently had fallen out of use by the first century, which makes this, this puzzle of a question even that much more curious. I want you to think about it with me. The Sadducees are advancing a wildly imaginative scenario of seven marriages and deaths around an institution that they don't even follow, centering on a doctrine of the resurrection that they don't even believe. So not only do we have this wild story, but we have this institution we don't follow and we have this doctrine that we don't believe. This is quite the web of deceit. It's, it's typical to the kinds of webs of deceit that we've seen coming out of the mouths of the Pharisees and the Herodians and now the Sadducees. And you know what we see? Next, we see that Jesus sees right through it. In fact, Jesus shows us that in two ways the Sadducees' little theological riddle doesn't deliver. In fact, to see it so clearly, you would really probably should turn to Mark chapter 12 
In fact, if you have your Bibles, you might turn to Mark chapter 12. If you don't have your Bibles, just note Mark chapter 12 there in your notes so you can go back and look at it because it's the same telling of this particular story. It's just Mark's retelling. It's a little more full, which is unusual for those of you who have read through the Gospels. You know that Mark is usually short shrift and quick and moving on to the next thing and showing the action of Jesus. But he expands a little bit on this story, and he includes what Luke actually omits. Right after this trap has been set by the Sadducees, in Luke's retelling, we have him go right in to begin to deal with the false assumptions of that particular riddle. And before he does that in the Mark account, we read these words. Jesus says to the Sadducees, Is this not the reason you are wrong? that you do not know the scriptures and the power of God. It's very short, succinct, and to the point. As soon as this marriage of seven marriages and, and the deaths and the no heir and the resurrection, it's, it's the kind of thing where someone asks you a question and its foundations are so bad that you look at them and you don't even know how to answer them. You think, in order to answer you, I'm going to have to ask my own questions uh, to, even get, to even get underneath the assumptions that this statement is actually bringing. And Jesus must look at them at this point. Is this not the reason you are wrong? You don't have a clue about the Bible. You are ignorant of its teachings and you have never come in contact with the power and the capability of its God. Now listen, many of our enemies today who attack Christianity, I think similar things could be said. Those of you who actually interact with those who are regular enemies of Christianity will often take a little, little tidbit here and a little tidbit there and couch it in deceit and advance it like it's some arrow that's going to destroy the faith. And yet most of the time, even as I was reading yesterday, decided to, to Google... Uh, the, you know, attacks against the resurrection. And I read several attacks against the resurrection. And every time I was reading them, I thought, well, that's not what even Christianity believes. We don't even have a clear understanding of the Bible here. We don't have even knowledge of what's going on that's happening here. And it's important for the believer to be saturated in the Word so clearly as we see Jesus model in and through these engagements with each of his enemies that he has a facility with the Word and it's teaching and understanding, and he's operating in the power of the Spirit so that he comes with humility but with truth to be able to expose the darkness that is around him and bring it into the light. And Jesus says they don't know the Scriptures and they don't know the power of God. And it's a stinging, honest assessment on Jesus' part, and it's absolutely true. But after Jesus makes that statement in Mark, turning back to, to Luke, he tells us that there's a fundamental assumption that's in this argument that was wrong. And here's what the fundamental assumption is. The fundamental assumption is you think that this age is going to be like the age that is to come. You have it in your mind that the life that we now live now, here on earth, feet on the ground, is translatable identically to the world that is to come. And you are mistaken about that assumption. Listen to how Jesus says it. Look at, look at the passage. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, what age? The age that is to come. Notice the age that is from the resurrection of the dead. 
Notice about this age. They neither marry nor are given in marriage for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. One thing Jesus clearly teaches us here is that this particular age, the one in which we live in, is not the absolute gauge of continuity for what it is that we can anticipate when we come into the age known as the resurrection from the dead, the new heavens and the new earth, when Jesus comes into his kingdom. This is a really good word for the Jews in the first century because the Jews, you know how they thought about the kingdom that was to come. They kind of thought of it as a lot like this age except better and longer. A lot like this age except better and longer. Really qualitatively, it was kind of life just life cleaned up and life longer. And, and to be honest, as I talk to a lot of believers and as I read a lot of literature on this subject, I think many Christians hold very similar assumptions about the kingdom that is to come. And the reason I say that is from one book that I was reading uh, not too long ago as a review for a friend. I won't give you its title or its author to protect the guilty. All right. He says this about heaven. He says, heaven is dynamic. It's bursting with excitement and action. It's the ultimate playground created purely for our enjoyment by someone who knows what enjoyment means because he invented it. It's Disney World. It's Hawaii. It's Paris. It's Rome. It's New York. All rolled up into one. And it's forever. Heaven truly is the vacation that never ends. Well, it may sound good on page, but there's some, there's some significant problems with that paragraph. Uh, one, of them, one of them being this, that it's the ultimate playground that's created for our enjoyment. The, the focus of, of heaven is you and your enjoyment. This would come to news in the scriptures because it, it appears to me that, that the kind of enjoyment he's talking about here is the enjoyment that Disney World offers, that Mickey Mouse and Cinderella offer to us. Um, I, I, I'm not sure that we can draw an equal sign between Orlando, Florida and the new heavens and the new earth. I sure hope not. I genuinely hope not. I read this sentence. Disney World, Hawaii, Paris, Rome, New York, our older one. Oh, please no, Lord. Please no. <laughs> Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. I don't know if you visited each of these cities, but there's likely a few things that are not going to translate into the new heavens and the new earth. And quite potentially, things that people enjoy in an earthly, worldly, and even sinful way. Do you see... Do you see, this? there's nothing in this paragraph that has anything to do with the quality of enjoyment that the age to come is all about. The quality of this paragraph has done nothing but appeal to our fleshly appetites. It has us only thinking of sunbathing on the sands of Hawaii and going up the Empire State Building in New York or riding the rides at Disney World and taking a picture with Mickey Mouse. I can assure you that those joys are far too flimsy 
to translate into the new heavens and the new earth. Because when you go into the new heavens and the new earth, you will be held captive by an enjoyment that is utterly the glory of Jesus Christ. There is no heaven without Jesus Christ. There is, there is no enjoyment of any substance, of any lasting reality, without the pure and unadulterated glory of Jesus growing in our measure and capacity for all eternity. Anything less is not worthy to be compared to what we're talking about when we talk about heaven. There is a major disjuncture between the world that you have your feet on now and the world that Jesus has gone to prepare for us. And it is unashamedly a world that is entirely about him. And if we are not locating our joy in Jesus, we will find no joy there. If it is Cinderella that we are looking for as we cross through the pearly gates, you will be sorely disappointed in the age that is to come. And in fact, you probably won't find yourself crossing the threshold there. You see, this is a place where Jesus is all and in all. That's what is very important for us to see. This disjuncture was not seen by the Sadducees. He didn't notice there was a division between this age and the age to come. And he says, in particular, there's, there's one thing I want you to know, that marriage is not going to be exactly like you think it's going to be. He says, though marriage is absolutely essential in our age, it will not be needed in the age to come. And we might ask the question, well, how come? How come? Why won't marriage be needed in the, in the age to come? Well, he actually gives us a clue as to what he's thinking about here. He says, because they cannot die. Oh, okay. Well, I, I'm okay with eternal marriage. You know, if you really love your spouse, you know, I'm okay with, with the, the reality of being with them always. No, that's not the point. What Jesus is saying is that one of the most fundamental purposes of marriage is procreation. Is having children, the sustaining of the human race. And, and there, the human race, uh, God's people will be sustained. They will be equal unto the angels. Probably not an indication that they're sexless necessarily, an indication that they're immortal, that they last forever, that they live forever. There's no, there's no death. We don't have to worry that one generation passes away and all of the human race is esteemed. He's looking here at the reality of immortality. They're unable to die. And thus one of the major functions of marriage was the continuation of the human race. That's the way in which God has designed it. So he says marriage is not going to continue. Now maybe some of you this morning, your marriage is not all that great anyway. And so you, you hear your marriage is not going to make its way into eternity and you breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief. Cut loose of this ball and chain. And it may be your response. Others of you, I suspect, like me, quite in love with your spouse. You would like him or her to stick around as long as they possibly can. And when you hear you're not married to them going into eternity, there might be a sense of, of sadness that settles on you. Well, don't get too sad. Don't get too sad because I want you to hear what Jesus is saying here. He says, it's true that you're not going to be married in eternity, but the reason 
that you're not going to be married in eternity is that marriage, again, is a too small a thing for the reality of which you are going. It's too small a thing. What do I mean by that? Well, husbands and and wives, you, you will not stop loving each other in eternity. In fact, I could go so far as to say you will love each other in ways that you could scarcely imagine. You think you have loved here. There you will love. There you will love. In a way that's not just married love, in a way that's that's deeper and more profound than you've only caught glimpses of in the best moments of your marriage here will be to a much greater degree the reality of the age that is to come. Because as John tells us in the book of Revelation, there will be marriage in heaven. It simply has nothing to do with the spouse that's sitting next to you. But that all of those who are in Jesus Christ will be the most ravishing sight of a glorious bride who is descending down from heaven like a city of Jerusalem, whose maker and founder is the Lord, like a beautiful bride who's walking down the aisle to her bridegroom. And we will cast our eyes towards the most beautiful being we've ever seen or will ever see. So much so that people talk about streets of gold and pearls in terms of gates, your eye will not be tempted to glance towards those things when you caught a glimpse of his face. You see, the reason that there is no giving and receiving in marriage of husbands and wives is because all of heaven is marriage to Jesus. One perfectly with him, the ultimate satisfying marriage that your earthly marriage, if everyone was, was faithful and honest this day, would say has not been able to fulfill in your life. That marriage will be. Do you see, the marriage here is too flimsy of a thing to pass into the reality that is to come. That's why all of it is marriage And Jesus says to the Sadducees, you've made this mistake. You've equated this age with the age to come around the institution of marriage. But let me tell you, that's just the beginning of your problems. The realization is your biggest error is that you don't even understand or believe the resurrection. The hope of our lives. Jesus says, let me take you back again to the writings of Moses. Remember those writings of Moses? You tried to trip me up with them earlier in our discussion. Yes, those writings. I want to go back to those. And I want to go back to a story you you know really well, the story of the bush. And you remember in the story of the bush? Yes, Jesus, we remember the story of the bush. You remember that Moses said that the Lord your God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes, Jesus, we we remember this. And he didn't say he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, 
in Jacob? He said he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, by the point that Moses was he speaking on that hallowed ground to God in the burning bush, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had long been buried and gone. They'd been gone for, for years. They had had existence in this age for who knows how long. And yet when Moses speaks to them, he speaks to God in the burning bush, he speaks with them alive right then, right there in the presence of the Lord. That even as we gather here in the presence of God this day, as loved ones pass, those whom we care for, those whom we have loved very, very deeply, go to sleep in this earth. If they are in Christ, they wake up in the presence of the Lord. They pass effortlessly from here into there. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that was true of them. And what Moses is actually saying is that everyone who has placed their trust in Christ has the hope that as immediately as our bodies relinquish our souls, our souls instantaneously go into the presence of the Lord. So much so this morning that we can talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Peter, the God of Paul, the God of Polycarp, the God of Augustine, the, the, the God of Augustine's mother, Monica. The, the right now, Monica, the one who nurtured Augustine in the faith, who repudiated her teachings for so long, and then later, by God's grace, arresting his soul through the book of Romans and receiving him into the kingdom and all of the prayers of his mother coming true. That's not passed to our Lord. That's not passed to our God. That's a living reality in his presence even now, so much so that we can say as we gather here, then our dear brother Jeremiah Small, who went and saw the Lord three years ago, killed in Suli, Iraq, is right now before the presence of God, alive and very well. Very well. I would dare say, much better than all of us in these pews this morning. So when, when you weep for those who are in Christ who have been lost, weep, grieve, yes, for sure, but with hope, but with hope because they're in the presence of the Lord right now. Do you see, our lives are not merely three score and ten and we're blown out like a candle and forgotten. We are those who by looking to faith in Christ, today know that as we give our last breath, our lungs are filled up with the presence of God in heaven. And it will be a sweeter breath and heartbeat than we've ever known. You know, even this morning, it was just Friday, I buried my grandmother. I was down in Jackson, Mississippi, officiating that service. She was getting ready for bed on Monday night, already had her gown and her robe on as she was set by that reading chair and on her nightstand, this would be faithful for her, was Nearing Home by Billy Graham. Oh, she didn't finish it. She didn't need to. She didn't need to. 
And today as we gather in the presence of the Lord, think, bring to mind the loved ones, bring to mind those who have truly known Christ. They are present with us by the Spirit through Him. And it is them who have gone before. Souls made perfect in the presence of God. Souls that right now we're told, even as the martyrs did around the throne of God, say, how long, Lord Jesus, till you come back and we're reunited with our bodies and the dust of this earth is reconstituted and glorified because the dust that was Jesus overcame the grave right here on this age. And then he went to the age that is to come. And you see, all that Jesus wins and all the places that Jesus goes are places that he, by his Spirit, through his accomplishments, will take us. They're places that he will take us. You see, the dust of earth sits on the throne of heaven. And that means that the dust of this earth, if you're in Christ, will one day be gathered around the throne of heaven. And so in the beautiful irony of the gospel, you know what this passage is teaching us to do? To prepare to die. It's prepare to die. It's prepare to die. No more of this thinking you're going to last forever. No more of this putting off the thoughts of death. No, no, no. Live as if today is your last. You know you're not promised tomorrow. You're not living that way, are you? You're not promised tomorrow. Don't leave that letter unwritten. Don't leave that sin unconfessed. Don't leave that relationship unreconciled. Don't leave that prayer unprayed. Don't think that you'll get to it. Today is the day of eternity. These are the things that matter. Let today be lived as if it was your last. And do you know what actually happens as you prepare to die? You live. When you prepare to die, it's when you really start living. So let yourself be filled with the thoughts of the end and not see death as the parting from this life, but the culmination and the entranceway into the life that is to come. And prepare to die. And together, let's live. Let's live in Him. Father in heaven, we ask you to confirm these truths. To speak them in a manner that affects change. That brings about true transformation in the lives of your people. Please, don't give us over to deaf ears. Don't let the birds of the air or the evil one gobble up the seed. Release us into your power through Christ, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.